Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us for the final episode of this eighth series. We'll be taking a look at Guess Who and his mugshot. However, don't be fooled. There's another story that's not being covered nearly as much. There's the story also of Andrew Clyde, congressman and gun shop owner. Any wonder he's against common sense gun legislation? Not too long ago, there were whispers about Michelle Obama running for president. Recent stumbles by Joe Biden have revived that talk. Should she think about it? Speaking of which, the president finally made it to Maui. His visit didn't go as well as planned. He went against the backdrop of more than 300 people still listed as missing two weeks after the wildfires. We told you some episodes ago that the BRICS countries were gearing up to compete with the West, especially the U.S. Guess what just happened? Off we go. So Donald Trump posed for a demonic-looking mugshot when he turned himself in down in Georgia. So what was the first question I asked myself? Don't get it twisted. A mugshot is not a conviction of a crime, any crime. I'm going to say that again. A mugshot is not a conviction. Of far greater consequence is the fact that prior to being booked, he shook up his legal team. He's got a new lead counsel, a guy named Steve Sadow, a well-known attorney whose past clients include T.I., Rick Ross, and Usher, as well as the infamous Gold Club. That was a strip joint back in the day whose owners reportedly had links to the Gambino crime family. Now, it should be noted that Trump often changes lawyers. In some cases, as often as most folks change their underwear. Just ask Rudy Giuliani, whose legal bills now are such that Trump has to give him a fundraising pity party in Jersey. However, what does it say about his confidence in beating these charges that he makes this move just after his legal team secures his release on $200,000 bond? Maybe he's not as confident as he tells his supporters. His supporters, by the way, are footing his legal bills. That's right. You thought it came out of Trump's billions? Oh, no, no, no. His supporters were those fundraising letters that he sends out. They're the ones taking care of his legal bills. Why would a billionaire have his minions paying to defend him? It's another question for another day. Meanwhile, there's quite a bit of turmoil in the world of Trump allies. And those are the people who are charged along with him, 18 of them in all. Last week's indictment parade in Georgia was revealing, as it showed several of the 18-odd people facing charges with Donald Trump want a speedy trial. That, of course, doesn't exactly suit Trump's priorities. Five others, including former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, want their cases moved from state to federal court. There's a supposed method to their madness. A federal jury would be drawn from a much larger pool than Fulton County, which brought the charges against him in the first place, the DA of Fulton County. Since the federal jury might have more Trump supporters on it, and one juror could hang a jury in a trial, well, you get the picture. As soon as some defendants asked for a speedy trial, Trump moved to sever his case from theirs. That would be because the last thing he wants is an early trial date. All this back and forth 
should tell all but the most ardent Trump supporters that he's most worried about the Georgia charges above all others. He wants the trial to be delayed until well after next year's presidential election and for it to be heard in federal court. We'll see how this tangled web is unspun in the weeks and months ahead. And while we're talking about Georgia, how about that Andrew Clyde, congressman from the Peach State? You may remember Clyde was the guy who said some of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, behaved respectfully as if they were on a, quote, normal tourist visit. That's a direct quote. Now, he says it was taken out of context, whatever. Anyhow, Clyde owns two gun stores in Georgia, and despite being in Congress only since 2021, he has led the charge against rational gun regulations. Witness his conduct at a House Appropriations Subcommittee hearing when he grilled the head of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives about a program that tracks gun store owners who sell large numbers of weapons later linked to crimes. That program is called Demand 2, and Clyde called it unfair, among other things. What he didn't disclose at the hearing was that one of his own stores was put under Demand 2. Keep in mind that very few gun stores in the country are put under the level, under this level, that is, of scrutiny. Not only did Clyde fail to disclose his naked self-interest in criticizing Demand 2, the reason for his criticism, and I guess his lack of forthrightness, ATF inspectors found his store, one of his stores, sold 25 guns over a three-year period. 25 guns used in crimes over a three-year period. Now, for context, there are 80,000 gun stores in America. Only 3% are subject to demand too. When asked, Clyde's office didn't say what the current status of his business is, nor did he explain why he didn't disclose his blatant conflict of interest. What else would you expect from a guy that helped sponsor a bill to make the AR-15 assault rifle America's national gun. I've asked many times before how people like Clyde, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and the lot get elected in the first place. These three and many more are part of the Congressional Dipstick Caucus. Up next, better late than never? Not in Joe Biden's case. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. These are certainly hard times for the people of Maui. What with the loss of life that has yet to be fully tallied, and more than 300 people missing still. We told you at the time of the fires that President Joe Biden was late in getting out to Hawaii to show empathy and support with the victims of that tragedy. Well, he finally did go. But his trip was marred by at least a couple of major gaffes, which are sure to provide ammunition to those who think he's too old to remain as president. First, he mispronounced the names of several Hawaiian elected officials during his visit. Even worse, 
he appeared to compare the devastation to an incident where he lost his car to a fire. That fire, reports later said, was minor and was put out quickly. Taken on their own, no big deal. Yet against the backdrop of Biden's being prone to gaffes, it just reinforces the age issue that has hovered over him since he took office. Yet, as several political experts have pointed out, Biden has been prone to gaffes and misspeaking for much of his political career. Here's what it may boil down to, assuming it's Biden versus Trump. Do you choose the gaff-prone current president or the former president who has been indicted four times? Some think when the rubber meets the road, the electorate will go with Biden. I, for one, am not so sure, and I've said so on many episodes of this podcast in the past. There's some evidence that some of his key constituents, including blacks and other people of color, don't have the warm and fuzzies for this president. And that can be crucial, especially in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, where turnout, particularly in the black community, is absolutely essential to any Democrat's hopes of remaining in the White House. It's absolutely crucial. And I mean, Pennsylvania is Biden's home state. Yet it appears as though if you believe the polling and the polling is a little perhaps suspect this early out, but it seems to be all we have. And the black community certainly will give Joe Biden an overwhelming majority of its vote against Donald Trump. I mean, that's a given. But how many people turn out? That's going to be the X factor. It's absolutely way too early to call an election that's more than a year away. Yet the media-created horse race almost demands the endless speculation that we've become accustomed to here. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are almost certain to be the two nominees. Such are the wages of party politics. The election could well turn out to be a landslide and not nearly as close as the polling now says it is. What happens if that happens and Trump refuses to recognize defeat this time around? Switching gears for a moment, and since we're talking about speculation and possibilities, let's talk about Michelle Obama. She has said on numerous occasions, including during an interview with Oprah Winfrey, that she has no interest in running for office, much less president. Yet the Brahmins of the Democratic Party are quietly nervous about Joe Biden. This is under the radar type stuff. Because publicly, they're all going to back him to the hill. Privately, maybe not so much. The Maui trip did not help matters any. Publicly, few Democrats, Brahmin or otherwise, are going to break with the president. Some will just as quietly say, That's because they don't see anyone on the horizon who can take on the Republican nominee, most likely Trump. But what about Michelle Obama? I'll I'll be honest with you. I'll be brutally frank with you. There's part of me that really, really wishes she would change her mind. Beyond the perfect politics of it, I actually believe she'd make a great, empathetic president. The impediment, of course, is Joe Biden himself. Those who think Michelle Obama should primary Biden are deluding themselves. The Obamas and the Bidens have a long-standing friendship that would preclude any such thing. 
The other side of the coin is that should this president decide even now not to run for a second term, the logical person to succeed him would be Vice President Kamala Harris. That's the logical person to succeed him. Unfortunately, she is not the popular figure Michelle Obama is. When I talk to people about Kamala Harris, they just, for whatever reason, I'm, and I'm talking about Democrats now, I'm not talking about the Republicans. When I talk to Democrats about Kamala Harris, few, if any of them, believe that she's actually presidential material. Now, I've met Kamala Harris. She seems to be a good person. People in California seem unable to forget some of the things she did when she was attorney general of that state. There are others across the country, even in the black community, who cringe at the name Kamala Harris. I'm not quite sure why, but facts are facts. And Kamala Harris versus Michelle Obama wouldn't even be a contest. There are numbers of others who leading Democrats, whoever they are, might back if Biden pulls out. Yet few of them have the star power and political clean slate as does the firm, former first lady. Again, she's told anyone who will listen that she's never, ever going to run for president. Yet in politics, never is a fluid term. Right now, she's enjoying life by all appearances, and it would take a powerful incentive for her to jump into the often toxic world of politics. Yet old politics watchers like me can only hope. And finally, I told you about BRICS some time ago. I told you they were worth paying attention to. Some new developments, I think, prove me right. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. We've talked about the BRICS countries before. They include Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And it's not a new organization. The term BRIC was coined in 2001, so they've been around for a minute. They have come together, they say, to create an economic counterweight to the influence, that is, of the U.S., Europe, and the West. Now, They've invited six nations to join their group. They include Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Argentina. Combined, the 11 BRICS countries contain 3.7 billion people. And it's a lot of folks. And by the way, it includes in Iran and Saudi Arabia countries that were at each other's throats until fairly recently. What I find interesting about Western media coverage of this new inclusion is that they tend to look at the BRICS alignment largely along political lines, not necessarily economic. That is, they group the countries in terms of democracies, autocracies, and theologies, all of which are represented in those 11 countries. What they report is absolutely true, but they also point out that the group not a club, which some of them say, a group is an economic alliance, not a political one. 
They tend to cite economic problems in China and Russia without looking closely at what each of these countries can do for each other under the BRICS banner. In other words, a skeptical Western perspective. That's all well and good, but it sort of misses the point as far as I'm concerned. If these countries put aside their differences and act as a force on the world stage, it could well make the West rethink some of its long-held views, not just about these 11 countries, but about the rest of the world as well. And to me, that's kind of sort of the point. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.